श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय श्रीमद भगवद गीता की जय सो इन आवर डिस्कशंस दस फॉर वीव कम टू द बिगिनिंग ऑफ द भगवद गीता आई मेंशन बिफोर देयर आर सेवरल बिगिनिंग पॉइंट्स ऑफ द भगवद गीता सेवरल पॉइंट्स दैट कुड बी कंसीडर्ड बिगिनिंग एंड सेवरल पॉइंट्स दैट कुड बी कंसीडर्ड the end so we come to another beginning point today and this is in the second chapter we'll read one verse that prefaces this beginning beginning in the sense that here now in bhagavad gita krishna will begin to expound upon the nature of the self really for the first time so he begins his sermon and this section is from text 12 until text 30 rather upanishadic section in fact two of the verses found in this section are from the katha upanishad itself or they appear there as well so it's an important section and it introduces us to the abc's of spiritual life conversation is as well for all of us because it took place tanayur bayur madhye vishidantam idam bacha in the middle of everyone assembled it's a battlefield of course this conversation took place on the battlefield so the two sides of the army and sanayor means the armies sanayur bayur madhye madhye means in the middle so standing in the middle where krishna had drawn the chariot at the order of arjun previously and of course that told us a lot about the bhagavad gita and its significance that arjun who's the devotee of krishna could order him do this go there drive it up in the middle the chariot and let us see who is assembled on either side as we explained this came in the first chapter and it, we reminded of that because the language here in the second line of this verse is the same senayor ubayor madhye so we're drawn back to that significant point where Arjuna instructed Krishna take my chariot between the two armies so i can see who's assembled to fight assembled here what are their intentions the significance again was that the, the whole message of bhagavad gita is that god krishna is conquered by love that love bhakti has the power to find a flaw in perfection in other words krishna is a flawed conception of the absolute fallen in love we sang a song earlier how he's being chased by his mother chastised for breaking the butter pot and distributing it to the monkeys so this is a beautiful idea the flaw of course is love love as i've said before is a is a fallen condition it's a weak condition so strong that no one can break it at the same time so krishna and love are very closely associated in fact the devotees who embody the highest love we venerate because they are non different than krishna how are they non different than krishna in a very wonderful and dynamic way they are non different than krishna in the sense that their love causes the absolute to show that particular face in other words there's no meaning to krishna without that kind of love that he is reciprocating in relation to 
And what is the nature of that reciprocation? To the extreme. Their love is so high, so extreme, so lost they are in the self-forgetfulness of love that the absolute, its capacity to reciprocate is exhausted. And therefore, what does God do? He puts himself in their hands. Do with me as you like. He becomes the son of Jashoda. He becomes the lover of Radha, the friend of Sridam, Subal. You have to understand this point. He's in their hands. So if we want him, we have to go to them. He said, drive the chariot. Let me see who's assembled here. This is the essence of Bhagavad Gita. But to get there, we have to pass through now all these instructions coming from Krishna's lotus mouth. Now here he is going to speak from that position in the midst of the two armies. Yes, he's under the control of Arjuna by love's force. But out of love for all of us and all assembled, as I mentioned, it's not just for Arjuna. The implication here is for everyone. Out of love for all of us, he's taken his devotee, Arjuna, and put him in a position where it appears that he needs advice, needs instruction, as we do, desperately. So Krishna begins here, for all of us, the implication is to speak about the kind of wisdom that we must imbibe and put into practice if we have any hope to attain such a high position that we can be called a devotee, a Vaishnav, and a Shuddha Vaishnav, a Prema Bhakta, and a Braj Bhakta, in whose hands Krishna is like a puppet. This is inconceivable. You have to understand we're talking about the infinite. And his coming to embrace fully one atomic, finite, infinitesimal aspect of the whole, ourselves. To give all of his attention to us. Imagine. So Krishna is going to speak down, give the foundation of his message, the foundation, that on which the, the plane where there is no death, no fear, no anxiety, and more, where the full measure of the Absolute's affection rules. That foundation for that world he's going to speak about, Tamuvacha, Rishikesha. And Sanjaya is describing this in the narrative here. He says, he names Krishna as Rishikesh. We are to understand from the very beginning here all of what this plane of love is about, this high ideal, at the foundation of it, it requires some control of the senses and the mind. Rishikesh means who is the master of the mind and the senses. This is a name for Krishna. So, Tam Uvacha Rishikesha, heavy topics here deep and sober topics. But, true to character, tam uvacha vishikesha prahasam eva bharata. Prahas means what? Laughing, smiling. So with a smile on his face, vishikesh, the great master of the senses, begins to speak to Bharata, Arjuna in the midst of everyone assembled. 
So Krishna is smiling. At this point, as we heard in the last discussion, Arjuna has surrendered himself to Krishna. He says that, Shishasteham sadhimam tvam prapanam. I put myself at your disposal. Consider me your disciple. You instruct me. Krishna has been chiding Arjuna and poking a little fun at him in a way to bring him in the direction that that he wanted him to go. Now Arjuna has surrendered. So for the moment anyway, he stops chiding him and his smile is not uh, cynical at all, but it's very uh, kind and endearing. He wants to say, that is, while I'm sharing with you very sober knowledge of Vedanta, Upanishad, Upanishad means Upanishad. It means to come and sit close. Sit close. So what is the implication of sitting close? Subal. If you sit close, it means you listen closely also. It means come close, sit close, so that I can whisper something in your ear. Something secret. Something that is not common knowledge. Not that everybody knows. Something special. Upanishad speak about the nature of the self. Most people have no idea about self. We know only about material objects. and We are unaware that we are attached to and we are unaware of the fact that it is we ourselves who have projected ourselves into those objects and thereby they have become dear to us. Only because we are inside of them. Because it's my car. It's my house, it's my wife, my husband. Because the self is there, they're dear to us. Our vision has been obscured. We cannot perceive this reality. So we're thinking material things are dear and important. No, the self is dear. This is uncommon knowledge that common people don't have. And so those who are interested in a comprehensive solution to life's problems, they can come and sit close and hear this message. As I said before, not everybody needs a guru. Only those that want to make a comprehensive solution to the problems of life. And it's one thing to share what that solution is, then it's another thing to put it into practice. So while it is very sober, the wisdom of the Upanishad, the wisdom that Krishna is going to speak, at the same time it's very dear and very charming. From understanding Brahman, the nature of self, the nature of consciousness, in a beginning sense, differentiating myself from my body, the experiencer from the experienced. From that we can go deep into experience of the self, the nature of being, the nature of ultimate reality. It comes to Krishna, Param Brahma. Very sweet, very charming, very endearing. So it's, although it's very sober knowledge, is very joyful also. Actually, if you want to be happy, you have to be serious. If you are serious about being happy, then you should study Bhagavad Gita. Often when we see something very serious, we make light of it. We make joke of it, to dismiss it. But we would only be happy by actually embracing the seriousness of life, what the task is that lies before us. Prabhupad, sometimes he was asked, how come you don't smile? There are many, many pictures of Prabhupada that he's not smiling and 
In fact, he looks unhappy or very sober. Of course, there are many pictures of him smiling broadly as well. Naturally, he did smile often. But often when he would reply to that type of inquiry, he would say something like, because uh, life is very grave or we should be serious about solving the problems of life. And also, one time he told one of my god sisters wanted to paint a picture of him. She was an artist. So he said, all right, you can paint a picture of me based on this photograph. He gave her a photograph. Then he went away, and after some months he returned. And he asked her, did you paint that picture? She said, no. He said, why not? She said, well, the picture you gave me looked very unhappy in that picture. He said, unhappy? That was a moment of ecstasy. So, it was mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita that Krishna Premier Adbhuta Charita, the Adbhuta Charita, the wonderful characteristic of Prem, love for Krishna, Krishna Premier Adbhuta Charita, Vaya Visha Jalahoi Bitare Anandamoi, Krishna Premier Adbhuta Charita, the wonderful characteristic of Krishna Prem, love of Krishna, that joyous state, is that on the outside, Bhayavisha Jalahoi, it looks like poison. But Pitora Anandamai, inside it is full of joy. Just like the Sadhakadeha, the body of the practitioner. If we take to the life as a monk, then we shave the head, we don't wear the latest fashions, a simple robe, live in the forest. Looks a little frightening. How can they be happy? I meet people in this dress sometimes, even in India, and young men ask me, are you happy? Why are you doing like that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> may look painful on the outside, but inside it is full of joy. Mahaprabhu, this verse I cited, of course, is in relation to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who exhibited the fullest extent of Krishna Prem. And in that expression of Krishna Prem, how did he appear? Crying and crying and weeping. Tears. Hairs standing on end. The joints of his body were dislocated in ecstasy. Looked frightening on the outside. Like poison. Undesirable. We don't want to go there. But inside, full of joy. Such joy. And material life is just the converse. Outside it looks good. America's perhaps greatest contribution to the world is packaging. Good packaging. It looks good on the outside, but inside it is rotten to the core, material life, corrupted. Oh, we have to look deeply if we want to be happy in life, we have to be serious. That is the implication of this verse. While Rishikesh, the great master of the senses, is going to speak now wisdom about the soul, the difference between matter and spirit, all these deep topics, he's smiling. He's also smiling because he wants to encourage Arjun, just like the preceptor, encourages the disciple by letting him believe or her believe that very quickly you will be enlightened, although it may take many lifetimes. Some encouragement must be there. And after all, then again, many lifetimes is a very, very short time compared to the many, 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 many lifetimes we've been drifting. Brahmanda, Brahmite, Kona, Bhagyavana, Jeev, Guru, Krishna, Prashade, Pai, Bhakti, Latobij, wandering throughout the universe with no direction, as an insect, 
an aquatic beneath the sea as a bird in the sky, wandering with no direction. No direction means only under the direction of the senses. If my stomach says, eat, I have to go there. If my stomach says, stop eating, but my tongue says, eat more, I have to go there. This is going nowhere. Wandering like this, wandering long, long time through many, many, many species of life. One of my God brothers once said to my beloved uh, Shikha Guru, Om Vishnupad Bhakti Rakakshita Deva Sami Maharaj, he said, Guru Maharaj, I'm not making any progress. I haven't made any progress with my life. And Sri Ramaraj replied, no progress? How is that? Now you have human life. What you have passed through to get to human life, so far you have come. And you say, no progress. And in human life, you have found Sadguru, a real guru. No progress? How can it be? My God, with Vishnu John Maharaj used to say, the distance we have traveled thus far before meeting our Gurudev is far greater than the distance we have to go from here to attain life's goal. That distance is very short, although we may speak of it in terms of many, many lifetimes. Very short. Brahmanda Brahmite Kon Bhagyavan Jeep Guru Krishna Prashade Bhai Bhakti So to move with some direction, that is progress. So here, Krishna is smiling, making light of the heavy topics that he has to discuss at the beginning of Bhagavad Gita. And, as indicated here, Sanayoru Bayor Madhye is for everyone, not just Arjun. What Krishna will do here, as he begins his speech, is take the discussion from the level of religious life to the level of spiritual experience, from religious orientation to a mystic orientation to the spiritual religious tradition. And generally, as I mentioned, this kind of Upanishadic wisdom is not for everybody. It's not for the common people. So some adhikar, some eligibility is required, some qualification. Generally it's said, atato dharma jignashu, and this is followed by atato brahma jignashu. The great Vyas, legendary compiler of all the sacred Hindu scriptures, wrote a concordance. He authored a concordance that sought to illustrate how all of the Upanishads, Puranas, and so forth, how they all are saying the same thing, how they all have a, they're systematic in nature, making a particular point. They're not just a varied body of knowledge going in many, many different branches, many different directions, but they have a conclusion. And that concordance is called Vedanta Sutra. He begins that by his statement, Atato Brahma Jignasu. He says, now is the time to inquire about the nature of Brahman. Vedanta Sutra is also called Uttar. Uttar means later. So a discourse or dissertation, a treatise that comes later. The Upanishads are the latter portion of the sacred literature, the concluding portion of the sacred literature. So it's to be understood, or it's implied, that to reach the conclusion, you have to have passed through the greater balance of the text. The greater balance of the text is about dharma, about religion, about how to temper our human life, how to color it, 
with a religious shade all of our activities, the principal activities of human society, childbirth, marriage, eating, and uh, our social life, and so forth, to color this with a religious brush, to bring it somehow, all these really sensual activities, in the direction of, of Godhead. The greater number of people these days, at least at best, are interested in this type of orientation to a spiritual tradition, a religious, a socio-religious type of orientation. The better part, the greater balance of all the scripture deals with this. And the implication is that having passed through that, applied oneself appropriately, one becomes qualified to see beneath the surface. It's one thing to have a religious human life, Another thing to understand that there's a difference between ourself and our humanity. That humanity itself is a dress of the soul only. What am I? So it's one thing to make the dress that our soul is presently wearing its outfit a religious outfit. It's another thing to step out of it and bear one's self, stand naked in life for what you are. And that is so dramatically different that one may look even irreligious, it's possible, in the fullest expression of the self. What could be a better example than Krishna? Our bridge Krishna dancing with gopis and so forth. So, while these two are come together at some point, the low point of spirituality meets the high point of religion. The high point of religion touches the low point of spirituality and from there we go so high into the spiritual sky, as high as you can fly. Here we find Christians now prepared to speak this low point of spiritual life to the highly religious Arjuna. In other words, Arjuna has already demonstrated thus far that he's a very religious person. He's versed in Dharma. In fact, he has given so many arguments for not participating in the war based on religious consideration. So again, the adhikar, the eligibility of Arjun, again comes out. While Krishna is chastising him, has previously chided him, and uh, he's already called him a fool once, and while all of his religious arguments are also a rationalization for not taking up the task at hand, they're a rationalization, that means to say, of his material attachments. He's rationalized his attachments. And a huge, erudite argument, religious argument he's come up with, really for remaining very attached to family and friends and uh, all the things that Krishna wants to bring him beyond, bring him to, bring him out, so he wants to bring him outside of the small circle of friends, family and relationships to the, to the big picture of life. We don't make these differentiations between my side and your side, the two armies that Krishna and Arjuna are standing in the middle of on the chariot. So, although his arguments are inappropriate in that they constitute a rationalization of his attachments, they nonetheless reveal that he's a very religious person. He had all those arguments to give. So he has passed through Dharma Jignashu, inquiry into the nature of dharma, of religious life, is at the high point of religion and the low point of 
spirituality. So Krishna will begin with the ABCs of spiritual life. Now, we might ask at this point, what is our position? I said this is for everyone. The text itself has said that, has implied that. Has everyone here passed through all the codes of dharma for many lifetimes? Are we familiar? Could we even give the argument, the religious arguments and rationalizations for our attachments? Hardly. So maybe we should close the book at this point. <laughs> no. There's another possibility, how we can come to this point of hearing about spiritual life. And what is the answer to that? What is that? It has been mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita in a particular way. Commentary of Baladev and Adi Shankar himself also have stressed this point. Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastra Matra, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi Hai. The value of Sadhu Sangha. Sadhu Sangha means to associate with the Sadhu. So it's possible if a great Vaishnava, a great devotee comes in our midst, just by his glancing, Baldev has mentioned this point, I believe in the 12th chapter of the Gita, discussing devotion itself directly. Just by glancing, it's possible. And my Guru Maharaj had that power. If there was one bodily characteristic that was most prominent in Srila Prabhupada, it was his eyes, his glance. If he looked at you, he had you. You were melted. Benediction glass. It's possible just by that glancing he can create the eligibility for hearing about Brahman. Amongst people who have not passed through all the religious codes and practices, adhered to them and so forth. So much we should value that good company. Just by glancing. The Prabhupada's eyes were so controlled <laughs> where he would give them. That was one of the reasons they were so powerful, that glance. He could see he was fixed on Krishna. And if he looked at you, then all of that fixation upon Krishna was transferred onto you, looked into your heart. So some of us were fortunate to get that glance. All of us, of course, and are reaping the fruits of that to some extent. And so here, now we can proceed. We know what is our, our eligibility. The very level of our interest to come to a gathering like this indicates we have some eligibility. But where it has come from that we are trying to help all of us trace out, it has come from this, from Sadhu Sangha. Even from some Sadhu, so powerful, even indirectly, his Sangha. The Prabhupada was like that. Whole temples went up, hundreds of devotees, ritualistic worship and prachar, explanation of scriptures and so forth in places he never went. He never visited there. This is extraordinary shakti. Krishna shakti vine nahi taru pravartana. Without this, vine nahi shakti. One cannot successfully propagate Krishna sankirtan. He had it in no small measure. You know, he prayed for that shakti on the boat crossing the Atlantic. He bargained with Krishna for that shakti. He said, my dear Krishna, my dear friend, my dear friend, it's known throughout the world and it will never change. It's fixed forever. Dhruva. It's a sure thing. It's certain. And wise people know it. What? That your life will be fortunate if you can get Radharani's blessing. He talked to Krishna in this way. This is the essence of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. 
And then he said, and my Gurudev is representing Radharani's camp, my dear friend. Therefore, what I suggest to you is that you give me the Shakti, the power to do what she's asking me to do. Come here to this Western world and do the impossible from nothing. No sadhu sangha, no sangskar in bhakti, no, it means impression on the soul in bhakti, maybe from previous life, to create interest and adhikar, eligibility for bhakti. I think it will be good for you. Radharani's representative will be pleased. She will be pleased. You will become pious, my dear Krishna, if you give me that power. This is how he reasoned, and in no small way, she gave him great power. We are all the coming in the wake of that Krishna Shakti. So we have some eligibility to hear Bhagavad Gita, to explain Bhagavad Gita. Sri Bhagavan Uvacha Vasochan Anvasochastam Pragnavadam Chavasase Gatasunagatasun Chananu Sochanti Panditaha. So here Krishna begins. Again, this is another beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, second chapter, text 11. And appropriately, Krishna begins now his instructions to Arjuna. He begins building, as I said, that foundation of spiritual life by instructing him about the soul, the difference between matter and spirit, either the ABCs of spiritual life, and Asuchan. So he's smiling, <laughs> and now his mouth is contracting. Ah, Asuchan. So from his smile, again, Hrishikesh takes on some a sober mood. His smile is contracted, and the first word, first syllable he speaks is ah. The first letter of the alphabet, Sanskrit and English, it so happens to be. Ah. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita in chapter ten of syllables, I am ah. It is the easiest sound to make. You can make it in your sleep. Ah. Ah. Krishna says, I am. Ah. Sometimes I've seen in yogic lineages, some gurus have come to the West and rather than telling their disciples to chant Om, because they think they don't have adhikar for pranava omkar, they tell them to chant Ah. <laughs> That's not so bad. <laughs> Krishna says, I am Ah. And in this Bhagavad Gita, of course, we're going to find out about Akama. Akarma, Akama, work that's not work, desire that's not desire. Akama means no desire. Vishwanachakvritakura, in one place, he said, All means Krishna. So Akama means Krishna Kam, desire for Krishna. That is Akama. Akarma means to work for Krishna, for Ah. <laughs> Working for Him, <laughs> desiring for Him, that is synonymous with not desiring, not working. Working for Krishna means no work, it means lila. Karma means work that's born out of necessity, necessity that arises from attachment to the body. When we are attached to the body, we have necessities, needs, we have to eat, to live. Krishna's life is not like that. So we can enter that life. Then it is called lila, not karma, or it's called akarma. 
It looks like work, but it is joy, like Mother Yasoda's work. She's perspiring very much. When Krishna saw that perspiration, he agreed to be bound. You know the Damodar Leela, and we chanted Damodar Astakam. Some of you are familiar with the Leela of Damodar. Damodar means Udara, the stomach. So to bind Damodar, to bind the stomach. Mother Jashoda wanted to bind Krishna around the waist and tie him up. Why? Because he stole butter, broke the pot, spilled the milk, distributed the butter and yogurt to the monkeys. She's chasing after him, catches him. She wants to tie him up. We might think she wanted to tie him up to chastise him. But actually, that's not why she wanted to tie him up. She wanted to get the ribbon in her hair. And pulling the ribbon from her hair, she sought to bind him. But the ribbon was two inches too short. So she grabbed some other rope and tied it to the ribbon. Again, made the effort, and it was two inches too short. And the ladies, neighboring ladies, are looking over the courtyard, smiling at this Leela. And taking the cue, they go and get some rope. Cowherds make rope in their spare time. <laughs> so there was so much rope in Vrindavan. They brought the rope, and again she tied, and again it was two inches too short. And making an effort, she's perspiring. And Krishna saw that perspiration. He understood her intention, her anxiety. So hard she was endeavoring. This is one inch. That Krishna became inclined to give his mercy. That is the second inch. These two things we need. We need to serve and practice as if our progress depended upon that while knowing it's only by Krishna's mercy that we can attain love for him. But if you simply think, it's only by Krishna's mercy, I will do nothing. If God wants, if he gives his mercy, I will attain. Then no, you will not attain. So she was perspiring, making great effort. Then he became inclined to give his mercy. And then the, all the rope was unnecessary. And with the same ribbon, she tied him up. And what was her motive? Not to chastise him, really. She had already started to chase him. She became afraid he might run away. When Krishna realized she wants to tie me because she's afraid I'll run away. How much she cares about me. He agreed to be tied. And how strong was that ribbon? This is the ribbon from her hair. How strong was that? Tied like that, he took the mortar that he was tied to and wedged it between two trees, huge trees. They had been standing for a long, long, long time and pulled them over. And the trees broke, not the ribbon. <laughs> so we should try to serve in that way, with that spirit, in our sadhaka deha, very determined in our practice. Nishta bhajana kriya, not anishta, not distracted, but focused. This kind of effort we call labor of love. So that is no labor at all. That is a karma. This is what Bhagavad Gita is really about. The setting is a battlefield. So this metaphor of the battlefield, taken in today's world with the terrorism and the uh, jihad, so-called holy war, people think, oh, you Hindus are doing the same thing. You've got a Bhagavad Gita here, and there's a battlefield, he's telling him to fight, and so on. But as we discussed before, this is really not about killing anyone other than our false self. We have to be determined in that regard. And if we're successful, 
things that Krishna is going to tell Arjuna in this section, Hanyate Hanyamane Sharire, from Katu Upanishad, this verse appears in Bhagavad Gita, Hanyate Hanyamane Sharire. You can't be an agent of killing, you can't be an object of killing. Self is in such a position. Therefore, you should go ahead and fight. <laughs> this cannot be misused or abused if we study Bhagavad Gita, because later in the concluding chapter of this text, in chapter 18, I think maybe around verse 17, Krishna, where he's summarizing the whole of the Gita, he speaks in a nutshell about what is the position of someone who can act even in something as undesirable or as horrible as this, fighting with many people who are your own relatives, slaying them. You can do that and not be implicated in any reaction, any wrongdoing whatsoever. What is the consciousness one must pass through reach that plane to be able to do that. So there's so many chapters in between this section and that. We can't just take this and say, oh yeah, the soul doesn't die anyway. Kill him. <laughs> Anything can be abused. So, Asochan and Vasochan stones. The Lord of Sri, Sri Bhagavan, Uvacha, he said, while speaking learned words, you lament for those not worthy of lamentation. The wise lament neither for the living, nor the dead. Jiva Goswami makes a salient point here in his Paramatma Sandarbha. He says, with regard to religious scriptures, if we want to understand them, or for that matter, any book, there are certain things that we can do to understand essentially what the book's about. One of the things we can do is we can look at the introduction and we can look at the conclusion. What's mentioned in the introduction should also be found in the concluding words very practical. So here we find the same words that we find here in the very beginning of the Bhagavad Gita are found at one of the principal endings of the Bhagavad Gita. In one sense, the end of the Bhagavad Gita is what? Krishna says, Sarva dharman amikam sharanam vrajaham tum sarva papi ma sucha. It means forget everything about dharma and take refuge in me. Come to me. Sarva dharman mamekam, only me, sharanam braja. It is said, after Krishna spoke this, he said, come to me, braja. And oh, the second meaning of the word braja came to his mind. Braj, Vrindavan. He went there, he couldn't speak anymore. Bhagavad Gita is ended. His mind is taken to the highest devotees after his discourse on devotion. He says, sin and come to me. Forget his religion, everything. Like the gopis, they just came to me. Very high idea. And he says, Sarva dharman pritaja mamekam saranam braja aham tam sarva pape du moksha ishami ma asucha. Ma asucha. Don't worry. Asucha. Don't worry. Have no fear. Don't be in anxiety. Do this. So the message is, be happy, don't worry. <laughs> be happy, like Mary Baba, what did he say? Be happy. Don't worry, be happy. He had it. Bhagavad Gita, this is the message. Don't worry, be happy. Krishna is saying the same thing right here in the beginning. Don't lament. Don't worry. Don't be in anxiety. And in between, so much justification. Why not? What is your real position? Why you have nothing to worry about? The time should not be spent worrying. Time should be spent studying Bhagavad Gita.
Now there's a question here that may arise in this text because Krishna is telling Arjuna, don't lament. He says, the wise don't lament for the living or the dead. But of course, Arjuna is lamenting at the potential loss of family and friends who will come from the battle. And we also see in great souls lamentation sometimes over the loss of a friend. Whereas they instruct us, don't lament. So Arjun has a kind of a query here. One may question why remorse for the loss of loved ones is not deemed appropriate for such behavior is seen even in great souls. Anticipating that Arjun might argue in this direction in the face of the strong possibility that his dear ones might depart, Krishna says, they should not be lamented for. And this is, in one sense, why Krishna is saying this. He's anticipating Arjuna's reservations. Knowledgeable persons, the word in this verse is pandita, knowledgeable, learned persons, know that the departed have merely gone elsewhere, as they do even in embodied life. Although great persons are seen to lament at times. This is merely an expression of their manifest, or prarabdha, as it's called, karma, exhausting itself while they themselves know better and remain situated in knowledge of the nature of the self. So this is an important uh, term, prarabdha. Prarabdha is a type of karma, that karma that is now bearing fruit. There is karma that's not bearing fruit, it's just in a seed form. It's just germinating. hasn't come to bear fruit yet. But there is karma that is bearing fruit now. Our bodies are that, our disposition. More our actual gross body, the prarabdha. It's already run its course. It's now fully blossoming. So when we stop this business of material life, Prabhupada compared it to what, like pulling the plug of an electric fan. When you pull the plug, the fan still goes around, but it's over, it's off. Turn the fan off, pull the plug, it's off, even though it still goes around. So that movement of the fan is like the prarabdha. It's playing itself out, and the, the secret is not to react to that, to let it play its course. When we react to it, we plug the fan back in, and it, it's going to come back to us again. So great souls, self-situated, they watch it come and go. So there, we may see lamentation in such a person at the loss of a loved one. But how internally he rea reacts to that and joy also comes. In one sense, this whole body is parabdha karma. And when the body ends, then uh, you can go on to the next plane. The devotee's situation may be a little different than the jnani, the jivan mukta. In jnan marg and in bhakti marg, a little bit different. The jnani is situated within the body. The parabdha karma is playing itself out. When it's finished, that'll be called death. It attains mukti, liberation. A superlative devotee becomes surcharged with the swarup shakti of the Lord. And Krishna desires to utilize such a devotee for purposes of his own. So he preserves his parabdha. Sometimes he takes the bad effects and gives it to his enemies. He may take good effects and give them to his devotee's friends. 
a certain amount of it he preserves in a special arrangement so that the devotee can remain and do something for him in his service. So the devotee is really beyond that prarabdha altogether, even while in the body. So Arjuna is instructed here by Krishna not to lament, to follow the actual example of great persons. And so, now Krishna continues. He tells him not to lament, and now he's going to tell him why. Why great souls should not lament. He says, Never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor shall any of us cease to exist in the future. Krishna wants to explain the eternality of the soul and the individuality of the soul as well. He begins here, and in the next verse he gives an example to help Arjuna understand the difference between the body and the soul. Just as the embodied soul experiences changes of body, such as childhood, adulthood, and old age, so similarly it will acquire another body after death. Wise persons are not deluded about this. Now Arjun hears this, and I want to go back and explain these verses at some length, but let me speak first here about the flow of the text. Krishna has spoken about eternality of the soul. He gives an example to help understand the difference between the body and the soul. Arjuna is listening. It sounds good, but he is lamenting. His mind is disturbed. Even though he's hearing this wisdom, he's attached and his mind is disturbed. So Krishna wants to address not only the subtle body, I mean, excuse me, the gross body, but the subtle body also. So his mind is disturbed, but Krishna is going to tell him, you shouldn't be disturbed. Even though your mind is disturbed, you're not your mind either. He's told him, you're not your body. Just as the soul changes bodies from childhood to youth to old age, the body is one thing, it's changing. The soul is something else, it remains constant. It always exists. It always will exist. It never did not exist. Arjuna is thinking, okay, but, but I am disturbed. And Krishna says, you're not your mind either. But in the next verse, he says, Matras parshas tu konteya. Here he speaks about the subtle body, the mind and emotional makeup of a person. He's saying, he's implying you're not that either. And what you have to do, I know your mind hurts. He underscores the virtues of tolerance. He speaks in a universal sense, macrocosmic sense. Happiness and distress, these two polar opposites, the dualities. Matras parshas tukundaya, sitoshna sukha dukada. Happiness, distress. Happiness is always happy and distress is always distressful. Heat and cold. Heat may be happy, may be distressful. Cold may be happy, may be distressful relative to circumstances. In the general broader sense, happiness and distress are two polar opposites. Happiness, distress, heat, cold. He says good, bad, pain, pleasure. He says all these things, they are all perceptions only of the mind derived from sensual input. And yes, 
it's troublesome. The mind is troublesome based on the world it's created. We get impressions from the world through our senses and they relate to the mind and the mind makes determinations about those impressions. This is good, this is bad, this is happy, this is sad. And we live in a world of such goods and bads, happies and sads. The problem with that world is that your goods and bads may not be my goods and bads. Your happies may be my sads. So, in this small world of the mind, the unity that we sense life must ultimately be about is lost. We can never come together. We have to come out of the small world of the mind in which only one thing is allowed to appear big, and that's us. That's the only comforting thing. But it's a false comfort because the reality is we're small and living in a very small picture of life. So we come out of that, as painful as that may be at first, we come into the bigger picture, and in the bigger picture we find the one person who is really big, that is Krishna, God. We see the means from his vantage point, world, what it is. And it's happy. It's joyful. It's a bowl of uh, cherries, <laughs> not the pits. This is, of course, we've talked about this at some length. To see in this way requires some deep thinking and applying that thinking. So, the virtues of tolerance. And then, further, he wants to tell the virtues of tolerance. He says, Yam, hi, na, pratayantiete, purusham, purusharshabha, samadukha, sukham, dhiram, so mrittatvayakalupade. Krishna mentions now for the first time in Bhagavad Gita self realization. So, amrittatvayakalupade, amrit immortality of the soul, that possibility. One becomes eligible for eternal life, self-realization. This is the virtue of tolerance. We have to tolerate in life, that's unavoidable. If we learn to tolerate for the right reason, tolerate the demands of the mind and the senses in the course of serving God, which will be required. I was once with Omishnupad Bhaktivedanta Wasami Maharaj, and he was telling the story of how he came to his mat, his monastery, in the jungle. Navadvipa was a jungle. There were tigers, Bengali tigers at that time. The mission of Bhaktivedanta Sarsri Thakur had uh, split in various factions, and various persons were carrying on the, the mission as they saw fit, and Siddharmar sought to withdraw from the whole affair. And think about what Saraswati Thakur had so widely sought to broadcast. With the help of some friends, he got this property, small piece of property, in Kolagdweep, on the bank of the Ganga. It was just a jungle. And he was living there with nothing. Gradually, a little hut was built, a couple of people came, and Sridharmarsh never tried to really establish a mission, in a sense. He was not opening moths and publishing books and collecting... Uh, uh, new disciples, if people came and they were very bent on staying there, then he said, you can stay, all right. He accepted them as disciples. But whether there would be enough to eat, he couldn't guarantee. And sometimes there wasn't. With regard to tolerance, Sripad Bhakti Sundar Govinda Maharaj once told how many times we did not have enough rice even to eat in the moth. Govinda Maharaj is a manager type, the organizer. Sridhar Maharaj 
not an organizer, not even of his dress. Saraswati Thakur used to say, tell him to dress a little better. Told Argumarsh, give him some better, he should look nice <laughs> for preaching. It was quite a contrast because Prabhupada used to wear silk and he always looked so paka, so nicely shaven. And uh, if Prabhupada would drink water as he would from the cup without touching his lip to the cup, after drinking the water, he would wash his mouth. <laughs> I saw him in September when he was becoming quite critically ill. I was invited, called in May to come there, as many of us were. When he first came to Vrindavan thinking he was going to leave, and then he seemed to get a little better, so he sent some of us back, and I went back, and again was called in September, late September, and I was shocked to see him at that time. So emaciated he was, practically he hadn't eaten for months. At that time he was eating only little charnamrita, lying on the bed, so weak, so thin, it was shocking to me. And then he would lift his head enough to get the charnamrita. Charnamrita means the foot wash of Krishna. And when we bathe the deity of Krishna, his feet are washed with honey and yogurt. and So a little spoonful of that he would take. And then he insisted. What he would bring the lota, the little pot with water, and he would wash his mouth. I was shocked. He was such a, like a pukka brahmana. So controlled. It was amazing to watch. And Sridhar Maharaj, I've seen chanting japa through the beard and hair and those glasses. Chanting japa with the right hand and eating puffed rice with his left hand. And he's a pukka brahmana. <laughs> Prabhupada was not born in a brahmana family. He used to make many jokes about it. Sridhar Maharaj from a pukka brahmana family. Not an organizer. And when the Maharaj an organizer. <laughs> so trying to organize and Sridhar Maharaj's very disposition, making it difficult, not enough rice to eat. When the Maharaj said, I used to go and I think I have to leave. How can I stay here? So he would go to the trees and ask their permission. Premiera Pal Kalpa Riksha. These are our extraordinary trees. They can give the fruit of prem. They can fulfill any desire. Special trees. So he used to go and ask them for permission. They never said anything. In other words, he accepted. These are kalpa briksh. They're alokika. They can walk. They can move. They can give any desire. They can talk. So I asked them permission to go. They don't give permission. I have to stay. You have to tolerate. And Sridhar Maharaj, talking about tolerating there, Almost as if it wasn't tolerance, he said. Yes, in the beginning, and I was here, and practically alone, and cold winters would come, and the rains would come, not a sufficient roofing, and, and a summer in the heat. And we were listening, and one of the sannyasis said, Guru Maharaj, we are stunned to hear you speak of how you lived here, tolerating. And Chidamar said, you are stoned? Stoned. The devotees all laughed, of course, because it has a certain meaning here in the West. But the Sridhar Maharaj, he was trying to understand English. You are stoned. They all laughed. He said, stoned, petrified, petrified. You are petrified. They said, yes, we become petrified. <laughs> to hear what kind of life you lived, to arrive at the position you are now. We were also eager to hear from you, and so many sweet things are coming. What you had to pass through. And he was teaching us, you have to pass through all those things, you have to tolerate. Mahabharata said, Tolerate like a tree, 
We live in the forest, as some of you know who have visited. So many trees, standing for a long time, redwoods, since the time of Mahaprabhu and before. And I tell the devotees, and still they don't, I ask them, how many trees have you seen today? And how many times have you thought of Mahaprabhu's edict? You should be tolerant like a tree. They never say once. They just remain silent. We don't think of it. And Mahaprabhu is the principal order to us. This will make our bhajan nishta. Without this humility, it's not possible. Without this tolerance that he calls for, he says, humble like a blade of grass. If you step on the grass, it just bends. No argument. Tolerant like the tree. If you chop the tree, it doesn't complain. In fact, it even gives you shade from the sun while you do it. Not a word. No complaint. Tolerant like a tree. Offering respect to others. Expecting no honor for yourself. This, he says, this will make your chanting fixed. Nishta. Sada. No interruptions. No distractions. These four things you have to put in place. Kaviraj Krishnadas Goswami said, Take this shloka, Trinada Pistuni Chena, wear it around your neck like a garland, and chant the Hare Krishna mantra incessantly. Krishna's recommending tolerance here is foundational. Yes, the mind may be disturbed, but what to do? Tolerate. And the virtues of tolerance, he said, Amritatvayakalpate, the nectar of immortality. Will come from this. What does Bhagavad say? Tate nukampam susamikshamana bunjane vatmakritam vibhakam vidvagbapubiridam namaste jiveta yo muktipade sadayavak. Shiramarj explained this first poetically. He said, The environment is friendly. Gita speaks of tolerance, to tolerate the circumstances. And Bhagavatam speaks of one step beyond that when it speaks of tolerance. It says, we have to reach the point from tolerating disturbances to finding those disturbances to be friendly. 